I don't take the view that the the Cold War was the prevention of World War Three. I take the view that the Cold War was World War Three. This is Cold War Conversations. If you're new here, you've come to the right place to listen to first-hand Cold War history accounts. Do make sure you follow us in your podcast app or join our emailing list at coldwarconversations.com. In Britain and the Bomb, Bill Nuttall draws upon insights from the laboratories, the military, popular culture and from politicians to make sense of a complex time and to challenge some of the widely held perceptions that Britain in the 1960s lost her technical ambition and ability. Now, if you're enjoying the podcast, please leave written reviews in Apple Podcasts, share us on social media, or leave a review wherever you write. By telling your friends, you can really help the podcast grow. It does cost money and time to produce the podcast, so I'm asking listeners to contribute three US dollars a month to help keep us on the air. Larger amounts are welcome too. Plus, you get that sought-after Cold War Conversations coaster as a monthly financial supporter of the podcast. You also bask in the warm glow of knowing that you're helping preserve Cold War history. Just go to coldwarconversations.com slash donate thanks to our latest patreons including chris pearson dave parry john rafferty this is rami john helsinki scott g graham horlock and mr giles so back to today's episode the story pivots around a single day in april 1965 the recently established Labour government very publicly cancelled the much-vaunted TSR2 nuclear strike bomber, causing dismay amongst aviation enthusiasts. We welcome Bill Nuttall to our Cold War conversation. It's sometimes said, don't judge a book by its cover. But in this case, uh, together with uh, Whittles, my publisher... We put some thought into the cover. Uh, you know, fundamentally, this is a book about nuclear weapons, weapons of mass destruction, etc. You, you might take the view that, therefore, the the book should be sort of black and orange and smoky, with hints of fire. And of course, you know, th- there's some truth in that. But what you actually see is Charles Thompson's wonderful painting before the axe fell of a TSR two climbing fast, and um, it's all shiny and silver and light blue and And why do I do that? I do that because I want to get the reader into the mindset of the late 1950s when that plane was specified. Uh, It's the new Elizabethan age. We've won the war. We we, we have a kind of sense of optimism. And um, we want to reflect that in our technology. And that's why I I do that. And then you look to the left on on the cover of the book and you see what you, you know, what you might think of as an RAF Randall. But it's not just serving that purpose. It's to evoke the mods, right? And uh, the, the mods and the rockers on Brighton Beach in 64, because that's part of the zeitgeist, right? This is the rockers being, you know, Harley Davidson, American influence, and, and the mods being the newly aspirational British working class and Italian designers. Now, who are we as a nation, right? It's all going on at the same time. Somebody gave me some good advice early on, and he said, look, Bill, yeah, a few people read books about airplanes and missiles, uh, but most big people read books about people. Right? 
And I started to think, well, who, who are the people in this story? You know, the test pilots like uh, Roland Beaumont or the, the military people who specified the, the plane like Douglas Lowe, you know, and who are these people? And I, as I learned more about them, I realized that they'd all had an amazing war, basically, that, that someone who was uh, 45 in 1965 had been 20 in 1940. So um, and the core people at the heart of the story are mostly men, and that's a story in itself. Um, but they were all shaped by the war in various ways. And so uh, Dennis Healy, the politician who was the defense secretary, was the a beach master at Anzio and an army, army major. Um, they'd all had an amazing World War II experience. And I wanted to uh, talk about that because I think you can only really understand the mid-60s if you remember it's only 20 years or so after the war. I think you're absolutely right there. I think the the other thing that's that's interesting is you also give the social context of, of the time because it's very easy to look at some of these periods with a modern lens but you give quite a lot of detail about the social context. Well, yeah, I mean, I think one of the things to say is that in this spirit about, you know, books about people, um, the, the one thing to say is that, you know, I take the view there were three great conflicts in the, in the 20th century, um, and they all, you know, have a human story to them. Um, one is the, you know, the First World War with the Tommies on the Western Front, front and that kind of mythological football match with the Germans at Christmas. And then you have World War II with Douglas Bader and his tin legs and the Battle of Britain and all of that. But you have similar personal human stories about the Cold War. So, so you know, that's, you know, to reiterate the point about the people. But the people sit in a, in a context, in a, in a social, cultural context. And um, so, so one of the things there is that um, towards the end of the book, I talk about the uh, the deployment of the first Polaris resolution class submarine in, in 68, which, you know, is only one year after the Summer of Love and Sergeant Peppers. And as it set sail, as I recall, jumping Jack Flash by the Rolling Stones was high in the charts. Right. So so this is not Pathé newsreel. This is not black and white grainy imagery. Uh, this is full Technicolor in the swinging 60s. Uh, so I wanted to, to, to place it in its historical context. You know, partly because some of my readership will remember that period from from their youth, right? So uh, that's when we're talking about yeah. the, the the mid to late sixties. Yeah, yeah, and and we we sort of mentioned earlier this acronym TSR two. Yes. Um, can you just e- explain a little bit more about what that was and what its significance was during this period? Well, yeah, let's start by unpacking the acronym. So. The part that's clear is what the TSR stands for, which is Tactical Strike and Reconnaissance. Uh, the two is sometimes said to refer to Mach 2, the very high supersonic speed that it would be able to do at high altitude. Um, so this this was a a plane that was uh, specified in the mid-50s, and I, and I tell that story, and was remarkably ahead of its time, I would say. I mean, it, personally, I take the view this would have been a challenging spec for the 1980s, and there it was being specified in the 50s. And, and that's partly probably why it's so well remembered. Um, but it, 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 things to particularly stress was that, you know, the T for tactical is a reference to, uh, includes a reference to nuclear weapons there. So, so the idea that this is an aircraft that can, can carry tactical nuclear weapons. And there was a kind of recurrent uh, thread in the narrative that, you know, would it, would it be a part of a strategic uh deterrent weapon system 
And it never officially had that status. But there were factions of the Air Force in particular who, who uh, you know, came back to that idea time and again. And, and, and that relates to something that's going on around this time, which is the start of the transition from, of the British nuclear deterrent uh, from the Royal Air Force to the Royal Navy. Right. And, you know, as I said, it's only uh, 20 odd years after the war. And of course, the war had been hugely important for the RAF, which had been founded only at the end of the First World War. And, you know, the few and the Battle of Britain and Bomber Command, you know, there was a huge national affection for the Air Force. And, uh, and they had emerged extremely important um, and had been carrying Britain's nuclear weapons under their giant Delta Wing V-bomber force. So the, the you know, the deterrent was, was at this time passing from, from the Air Force to, to the Navy. Um, and uh, the TSR-2 aircraft was the the main aircraft program of, of the for the Air Force. And there's a whole story there in the background uh, about why that was the case uh, and the role that the TSR-2 aircraft would be playing with the aircraft industry. Um, but, of course, the famous thing about the TSR-2 was that not long after Labour came into power, uh, so in the spring of 65, uh, the aircraft was very clearly and publicly cancelled by the Labour yeah. government. And it was quite an advanced aircraft for its time as well, wasn't it? Well, yes. And um, and this takes us to something I think that is not sufficiently discussed about TSR2. And I think I'm originally indebted to uh, Guy Finch uh, for this idea that he wrote a student thesis many years ago, which is the idea that TSR2 wasn't just built for Europe. Yeah, we, we think today of um, uh, the, the Cold War and Britain and, and the bomb, and we, we think so much about NATO and and, and potential warfare in, in Europe or in the Arctic region. But in the 50s, going into the 60s, that wasn't the case. Britain, Britain was involved in other important treaties. It was involved in the Southeast Asia Treaty Organization, SEATO, or in the Central Treaty Organization for the Middle East, CENTO. Now, these were very important treaties for Britain at that time. And TSR2 was important to meet the defense needs to underpin those treaties. So, so, you know, TSR-2, its specification, allowed it to operate off, you know, improvised airfields and and to be um, sort of self-supporting in the field for long periods of time. And, and it had these giant, you know, wheels on it that allowed it to, you know, again, to take off from essentially jungle airstrips. And, you know, this is not really for Europe at all. This is This is for Southeast Asia. This is sort of flying out from... Australia to fight a war in Southeast Asia. And, um, you know, by the end of the 60s, this, this was no longer a British objective or, or, or goal. But at the end of the 50s, it, it definitely had been. And meanwhile, in the European context, you know, this attribute of, you know, flying really high and fast, well, that was increasingly not necessary. Um, so, you know, in, through that lens, through the whole so-called East of Suez lens, where, you know, the same Labour government would go on to retreat from East of Suez. Through that lens, uh, you know, TSR2, uh, if you're not East of Suez, you don't need TSR2 to some extent. And that's not a common part of the narrative. So in the in the late 50s, the uh, Defence Secretary, Duncan Sands, writes a white paper where he talks of the future being pilotless, which uh, obviously is... Uh, a threat to the TSR2 program as well. Yeah, and I think, you know, um, arguably to the Air Force as a whole. So this pilotless idea that Duncan Sands um, 
had come up with then. Um, well, first of all, he probably came up with it much earlier. People, as it's talked about in the book, you know, wonder, you know, how early he took this view that, you know, the future for the Air Force was going to be missiles, basically. Uh, I should stress he never had that view for the Navy. He, he, he did take the view there would be piloted aircraft for the Navy. But for the Air Force, yes, he, he seems to very clearly have taken the view that, you know, pilots would no longer be needed. And, um, you know, for a 1957 white paper, that was, I would suggest, manifestly wrong. Uh, in the 21st century, it becomes an interesting idea, but, but not in 1957. Um, and, and the consequence was that there, there were very few um, government-led aircraft projects for the Air Force. And, and it, in fact, it got down to just one, uh, the TSR-2. It wasn't, in fact, though, the only plane uh, destined for the Air Force because Hawker Siddeley, entirely off their own bat, as I understand it, were um, working on what became the Harrier jump jet. So, so that plane, you know, was was a British heritage and done for the Air Force, but not with government money initially. Whereas right. the TSR two was the was the government's piloted plane, and there'd only be one. And they used that reality. For a very important part of the whole TSR2 story, which was basically an act of industrial policy. Uh, and this is perhaps the clearest way in which TSR2 was a success, actually. So coming out of World War II and that whole story of shadow factories, building planes designed by other people and dodging the bombs of the Luftwaffe, that shadow factory heritage had led to just a crazy number of aircraft companies. And also a crazy number of aircraft engine companies for, you know, what was you know a modestly sized country, and it was just clear that this had to be rationalised. But the banging of heads together to force them to merge was not easy, and that was a condition of the TSR two contract. This very ambitious, clearly going to be well resourced. Hi, this is Rhonda in Virginia, and I support Cold War conversations because I think the work that Ian is doing is critically important. I think it's vital to record the firsthand accounts of people who lived and experienced the Cold War uh, because it illustrates history in a way that a book never can. So thank you so much for the podcast. It's my favorite podcast, and I look forward to it every week. To be like Rhonda and help to preserve these incredible stories of the Cold War, as a monthly or annual supporter, you'll be able to listen ad-free, you'll become one of our community, get the sought-after Cold War Conversations drinks coaster as a thank you, and you'll bask in the warm glow of knowing that you're helping to preserve Cold War history. Just go to coldwarconversations.com slash donate to find out more. Aircraft project required a consortium to be built. Government insisted upon that. And that gave rise to the British Aircraft Corporation, which after further mergers and changes is today's BAE system. Um, and the heart of that process of amalgamation was the bringing together of uh, Bristol, the aero engine company, but also very importantly, Vickers and English Electric, two very important World War II aircraft companies with rather different heritage and strengths. And these entities were forced to merge. And, 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 and that was, you know, through the TSR2 project and I would suggest has been a helpful thing for British aviation industry ever since. But of course, the aircraft itself was cancelled. Yeah. And in 1960, Gary Powers is shot down um, over the Soviet Union in a, in a U-2. And that changes 
sort of aircraft strategy uh, to quite a significant extent. Yes. Yeah, so, you know, previously there's this whole notion of, um, you know, supersonic deep penetration into the Warsaw Pact and the Soviet Union. And, you know, Gary Powers was shot down at very high altitude in his U-2. And uh, therefore, Soviet surface-to-air missiles can bring you down when you're going very at, at a very high altitude. Um, you know, as a consequence, you know, many aircraft projects uh, bit the dust, the North American Valkyrie and, and the British TSR-2 in, this, in some sense, because, you know, TSR-2... Um, was very much to be a supersonic aircraft. And then, um, you know, once it was um, behind, the, behind the Iron Curtain and getting closer to target, it could terrain follow. But, you know, when you're hugging the ground at uh, a few hundred feet, you're going to be below the speed of sound. You're not going to be at supersonic speeds because of the thick air and the turbulence and things like that. So basically this, this high-altitude, high-speed Mach 2 penetration attribute that was kind of ended by um, the Gary Powers shooting down. It it just wouldn't be safe to go in uh, high and fast anymore, and and that became right. so true for you know it had consequences for uh, the deterrent that was being carried by the V bombers. So you know the Vulcan bomber, which again, although not supersonic, had been a high altitude uh, aircraft, was suddenly you know forced low, and that put a lot of literally put a lot of strain. On, on these aircraft um so yeah so so basically you're, you're if you're going to come in you're going to come in now low and fast but you're not going to be flying supersonic and that gives weight in in that context to the alternate aircraft proposition the the blackburn buccaneer that was frankly the navy's plane um it couldn't go supersonic but it you know could go fast and low and as various people including lord manbatten said why not have those because they're cheaper and in a European context, that makes sense. TSR2 and its successor in British thinking, the F-111, would always have made sense east of Suez, but as I already mentioned, politically, that was ending. Britain was also trying to develop some of its own missile systems during this this period as well, because I think they they recognised the, the problem with getting close to the Soviet Union, so they were developing sort of uh, a standoff missile um which i think was the blue steel so that's right so so that's um that's a weapon that would was carried under the the very large vulcan bombers the v bombers and is a standoff weapon and uh so the bomber doesn't have to fly over the target it it drops the weapon and then the the weapon flies very high speed to target as the as the bomber turns for home or at least tries to turn for home uh yeah. so uh yes uh, but but blue steel um, was not the weapon for uh, the TSR two. I understand that the UK are then keen on an American missile system, the Skybolt, but Kennedy cancels that in 1962. Yes. So Macmillan then goes in to negotiate an alternative, <laughs> and uh, does quite a good deal, I believe. Well, yeah. So December 62. The Americans, Kennedy administration, tell the British that they're going to cancel the Skybolt standoff weapon, so a much longer-range version of the concept that the British had going with Blue Steel. And they're going to cancel it, and they said to the British, you can finish it, 
you know, in our factories with your money. And this was a time when uh, there wasn't the free exchange of currencies. Uh, dollars were very precious for the British government. And the idea of taking on the open-ended risk of financing this entire American weapon system, Skybolt, you know, that was a non-starter. There, there was no chance that the British were going to finish Skybolt just for our own needs. So, so clearly, you know, Skybolt was off the table, which was the next phase planned for the strategic Air Force-delivered nuclear deterrent. As I said earlier, the, the T in TSR2 stands for tactical, but the, the more strategic deterrent was going to be Skybolt under the big Vulcan and uh, you know, the V-bomber force. The yeah. Americans took that off the table. You know, they're causing real concern. But by April 63, the British had got the Polaris sales agreement, whereby we got the right to deploy the Polaris submarine-launched ballistic missile. Quite a remarkable uh, increase in British capability. Um, and, you know, that is the key part of the story by which the uh, nuclear deterrent, you know, passes uh, in time from the uh, Air Force to the Navy. But, you know, one of the aspects of that story is, and it actually surprised me how soon thereafter it appeared, by, by the mid-60s, the British began to realize that for us, there were worries around Polaris because our, our force was quite small that we were going to be getting and it might not fit our defense needs. So, so it, from relatively early on, we started to worry about Polaris. You know, and uh, as I said earlier, we were cancelling TSR2. So all these things are going on at the same time. And uh, it allows me to make a link to something I'd like to mention, which is that I said that um, mm. there were three great conflicts in the 20th century. And you know, it, I don't take the view that the, the Cold War was the prevention of World War Three. I take the view that the Cold War was World War Three. And, and, and by that, you know, what was the Third World War? It, it was a, a technologically dominated chess game, basically. You know, thankfully, you know, it was the war which killed by far the fewest people, but by no means a negligible number, if you think about Vietnam and Korea and all the other conflicts. But, but it killed far fewer people than World War II and World War I. But it was, it was more technological than either World War II or World War I. And, um, and this chess game is that you move the pieces by developing and deploying or giving up and decommissioning. These are acts in the chess game. And, um, you know, by moving, you know, the deterrent from the Air Force to the Navy or by cancelling the TSR-2, these are some pretty bold moves on the chessboard. Right. So at, at this point, though, TSR-2 is still going ahead. And yes. Australia, Australia is seen as a strong export market for the aircraft, but um, the U.S. are courting them with an alternative. Yeah, so the alternative is uh, the F-111 from General Dynamics, um, which is an interesting heritage as an idea itself. And, and broadly, the F-111 aircraft and the TSR-2 aircraft are similarly capable. They deliver that capability in somewhat different ways, and that's, that's talked about in the book, but they're, but they're similar capability aircraft. Uh, at around the same time. Now, one of the things that's interesting about you know, the whole Australia dynamic is that let's take it back to sort of Britain and the victory in World War II and going into the 1950s. You know, there are various ideas about, you know, Britain's role in the world after winning the war. And, and we know what did happen. Uh, what did happen was that, you know, we 
built a strong relationship with the United States, which became particularly strong in 1958 with the Mutual Defense Agreement. And we ended up very focused by the closing years of the 20th century on NATO and European security and the Arctic, right? But that wasn't the case, as I said earlier, in the 50s, right? with these other uh, obligations and outlooks. Um, so there was an idea that didn't last very long, and I, and I think it wasn't a good idea, uh, the so-called Fourth British Empire that was the, a kind of partnership of the United Kingdom with essentially kind of southern dominions, thinking like Australia, New Zealand, etc. And this would form a kind of economic and defense community out of the ashes of the British Empire, in a sense, and um, allow us to look the Soviets and the Americans in the eye, if you see what I mean. And I don't think that was ever credible, but that, but that idea had sort of been in the background and, and as, a, as a British idea that was rejected. And it would have involved us, for instance, you know, giving the bomb to the Australians and things like that. We know what did happen, and, and I think at this point it's also to think about you know, the Australian perspective on all this. Because you know, by the 60s, you know, they are not seeing themselves as, um, you know, part of a, you know, a fourth British Empire concept. You know, they're an independent country, you know, on, you know, on, on their way to fully achieving that and um, uh, with their own strategic needs and, and concerns. And, and as you say, being courted by the Americans. And, you know, one of the very clear bits of evidence on that is the Vietnam War. So, you know, Australian troops fought in Vietnam and British troops never did. You know, Dennis Healy, the guy who cancelled the TSO-2, was endlessly pressured by the Americans to send British troops for, to Vietnam, but he absolutely refused. So, so you know, Australia and Britain are making different choices, and, and uh, Australia has been courted by the Americans, and, and a big example was in 63, they chose not to buy the British plane. They chose to buy the American plane, the F-111. And I do take the view that if Britain had sold it to Australia you know, with that export order, the plane might have had a brighter future. Um, I only say might have. It's not manifestly the case that it would. But, yeah, the, the Australian rejection of the TSR-2 was, was very bad news for, for those in the Air Force and, and uh, BAC who were, were planning that as being a major part of Britain's defence future. Yeah. And the, the early 1960s there was conservative government in the UK, but in 1964... Harold Wilson comes in with a Labour government, and that's also the the same year that the first uh, um, of the TSR two fly. But there's a lot of concern flying around around increasing cost and relevance. Yeah, so there's a few things sort of embedded in what what you just said. TSR two had what's called batch production. It, it, they in fact didn't make a prototype. The the, the very first aircraft would have been actual aircraft in service and that was arguably one of the tsr2 mistakes that actually they should have had prototypes um but to your more important point about you know labor and tsr2 and the cancellation i think one of the things that that you know i hold in mind is that the labor party through its history has had an interesting relationship with british nuclear decision making nuclear weapons decision making so I, you know early on i said that you know, Clevin Atlas, 1946 government had um, uh, made a decision to develop a nuclear weapon. Um, we have these decisions being made by Labour in the 60s that involve the, the cancellation of the TSR-2. In, in the 40s, the Atlee government had made nuclear weapons decisions that were very important. 
But in the 60s, the Labour government's making nuclear weapons decisions that are very important, particularly around Polaris and its upgrade, and this uh, technology called shoveling. But also, you know, later, outside the period of the book, in the, in the late 1970s, Labour again sets the ground for the decisions that would be the Trident deployment. So this is the uh, Jim Callaghan's late 1970s government is also making important decisions in support of Britain's nuclear weapons and nuclear deterrence. So, you know, at the top level, the Labour Party-led governments are making decisions in favour of British nuclear weapons capability. But it's extremely controversial within the Labour Party, especially at certain times. So, so the party would have had prohibitions or, or uh, you know, conference resolutions against nuclear weapons. Uh, and this meant that the whole issue of uh, nuclear defence planning was very sensitive for Labour politicians. Um, but to say that, you know, it, you know, if someone were to say that Dennis Healy uh, cancelled TSR2 as an act of nuclear disarmament, uh, that would be, you know, very wide of the mark. No, he's making um, decisions in a very cost-constrained framework, uh, which are broadly, or, or I would say strongly, in favour of maintaining Britain's nuclear weapons capability. And, and that is talked through in the book. Yes, yeah, no, it 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 is indeed, and I think that that's the that's the interesting, or one of the many interesting strands in here is is that essentially, you know, by the time Labour comes in in nineteen sixty four, the relevance of TSR two in national defence and also the increasing costs almost make it inevitable that the program is going to be cancelled, wouldn't you say? Well. Um, here I'm indebted to Matthew Jones, the official historian of uh, the deterrent, because, um, you know, I was conscious that various uh, ideas have been circulating in government at exactly the same time. But he he, he points very clearly to the fact that it, it all came down to the fact that, you know, in a situation where they didn't have enough money, they were faced with a choice. Uh, would they continue with this capability for a great plane for the Air Force? which by then was the F-111 option, um, or would they pers persist with improving the Polaris-based weapon system in the submarines? And they didn't have enough money to do both. And, and Dennis Healy was very keen uh, to keep the Air Force option alive, but when push came to shove, he chose the Chevalier submarine upgrade. So, um, yeah, so, so that that's all going on in, 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 the, in the 60s, and the idea that... No, one finally was chosen over the other was something that I, I, I saw in the official history. So, you know, I don't look on TSR2 as having been this kind of melancholic failure of British policy. I, I said earlier that it left us with a very strong industrial strategy legacy, uh, a good one. Uh, but also I do see the act of starting it and then cancelling it as moves in the chess game that I mentioned earlier. And... The cancellation of TSR2 was quite a shrewd move. So what happened was that um, Dennis Healy managed to negotiate at zero cost in the end. He got the price down to zero, uh, an option on the F-111 aircraft, and then he cancelled TSR2. So, um, you know, he wasn't sure, I, I think, about, you know, what the future would hold. And, what, and the question is sort of is looming there in the book that was he thinking already of 
getting out of east of Suez. But he was has always denied that. But anyway, so the option of such a plane was hugely valuable, but it wasn't manifest that we really, really needed it. That's my view. Uh, And he managed to negotiate that option with the Americans at no cost and cancel TSR2. And I think if we'd not had TSR2, if we'd not had TSR2 as a credible alternative, he would never have got an option on F-111 at zero cost. Um, It turned out uh, a couple of years later, we cancelled the option. Uh, but we had the option for a crucial couple of years in the in the mid '60s. So that's one point that I think is important to understand. One of the things about nuclear deterrence is that the the debate in Britain is very often about whether to have one or not, um, and not really what it's for in a in a in a more detailed sense. And you know there are many ways to de- deter a potential aggressor. And I think in this period of you know the high Cold War. No, the putative aggressor is the Soviet Union, right? and um, you know there are there are many ways in which you might threaten the Soviet Union with retaliatory harm, but one of them is the destruction of Moscow, and Moscow was essentially the best defended place on planet Earth, and it was clear that it was going to be even better defended with the deployment of a set of missiles. You know, not around the ring road of Moscow, but a long way from Moscow, uh, all set up to defend Moscow. And these, these missiles went by the name of Galosh. And they were missiles designed to explode nuclear weapons in outer space, to intercept incoming uh, offensive weaponry. And so the situation Britain got found itself in was that we were going to have four ballistic missile submarines. And in fact, today we have four ballistic missile submarines. Uh, four is the standard number now. Uh, in, in the original scheme of Polaris, the Britain were going to have five. The British are going to have five. But um, to save money, the Labour government, before they knew about the things I'm now talking about, um, cut the plan down to four, simply to save money. And with four, the idea is that there's going to always be at least one on patrol. There might be two, but there's definitely one. And the capability was to fire 16 missiles from a single launch point, from a single submarine. And each missile had three warheads, which would fall as a triangle on the target. And if you're going to ring Moscow with uh, ballistic missiles to defend Moscow, well, you only need 16 in principle to stop all 16 British incoming missiles. But the rumours were that by the 70s, they might have as many as 100 which meant they'd have many spare if the British ever wanted to fire their weapons at that target. And because the British were setting themselves quite a high benchmark standard for what their deterrent you know, should be able to do, this so-called Moscow criterion, it wasn't at all clear that going into the future that the Polaris force would be able to do that. And that put a challenge down that the government and you know, the, the technical people spent many years working on at enormous expense to beat this expected ring of missiles around Moscow. And so I, th- I think you you also cover in the book the sort of difference in aesthetics between TSR2 and Chevalin in, in so much that it's very difficult to, you know, produce imagery around what the Chevalin program was about, whereas I think most people would say that the TSR2 is a very visually impressive aircraft. 
Yeah, so I think one of the themes of the book is that, that here are two British, utterly British, technological innovations. One is the TSR2 and, and, and one is Chevrolet. Uh, the, the TSR2, with its famous cancellation, is this kind of part of a story, a rather melancholic story about Britain that gave up, Britain that can no longer make anything, a kind of post-industrial Britain, and uh, a Britain with less ambition, yeah, associated with the cancellation of this, this you know, some would say beautiful plane, um, which I should say some of the technologies, you know, go into Concorde, which is, you know, similarly at the heart of the nation, uh, you think about these times, but again, you know, did not go well as a technology. Um, so that whole thread leads us to, you know, think about, you know, who we are as a, as a nation. Meanwhile, there's something we did, did develop and did deploy, Chevrolet. It was utterly secret. Uh, and the first time anyone knew about it was when uh, it was announced. And then shortly thereafter, there was a public accounts committee report in the early 1980s that, you know, pointed out just what enormous amounts of money had been spent on it, which I think led many to think that anything that cost that much must have been a waste of money. Um, but I sort of suggested it, it, you know, was a very, very large scale and ambitious thing. Um, but, you know, you, you, you can buy an Airfix model today of the TSR2. There was a cutaway of the TSR2 in the Eagle comic. It was on, you know, in the newspapers and, and, and widely talked about. And Chevrolet was utterly invisible. And um, so I think, you know, when Dennis Healy and the others in government were making these decisions around, uh, you know, our treaty obligations as NATO becomes more important, our industrial strategy, the notions of deterrence and all this, and for reconnaissance and all, all the attributes of these aircraft and things, what they weren't thinking about was the na nation's sense of self or its national identity or, you know, um, its optimism. No, no, they were making defense policy choices. But the funny thing is the choices they made had consequences around our national sense of self. Um, and because, of course, they were very conscious of the decisions they were making in favor of Polaris upgrade and all the high tech things that were going on with that. But, of course, that wasn't visible. So. So while you can have your Airfix model hanging from the ceiling of TSR2, uh, you don't find that with Chevrolet. No, no, indeed, indeed. And and the book has some lovely um, colour plates in there showing some of the um, imagery that the uh, the British Aircraft Corporation were, were using to uh, describe some of these projects, as well as some great black and white images. So I highly recommend getting the book and we are also doing a book giveaway so uh we've been kindly given three copies of the book and there will be details in the show notes as to how you can win this this book the book is britain and the bomb technology culture and the cold war and as bill said it's not a strictly uh what i would call a, a rivet counter book it doesn't go into huge detail around the weaponry if that's your bag it's more around the uh the culture and the context and the politics that went around the decision to move Britain's uh, nuclear deterrent from an airborne deterrent to a submarine-based deterrent. Thanks, Ian. 
And we have further photos, videos and information on this episode in our show notes, which will show as a link in your podcast app. Don't forget, if you'd like to get one of those Cold War Conversations coasters to help keep us on the air, then head over to coldwarconversations.com slash donate. And if you can't wait for the next episode, do visit our Facebook discussion group where listeners just like you continue the Cold War Conversation. Just search for Cold War Conversations in Facebook. Thank you very much for listening. It is really appreciated. Goodbye. not enjoying the ads well you can avoid them by going to coldwarconversations.com slash donate by becoming a monthly or annual supporter you'll enjoy ad-free listening become a part of our community receive the sought after cold war conversations drinks coaster and bask in the warm glow of knowing that you're helping to preserve cold war history just go to coldwarconversations.com slash donate for more information